You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Sorry I'm late, Bracken. You're a busy man. I was a minute late signing on. I was five minutes late. And it's always you who's late, so this feels a little weird for me. Yeah. Yeah, one thing you don't know about me is my watch, my computer, and my phone are not even within one minute of each other, and they're all internet connected. That doesn't make any sense. It's a very strange thing. So what time does your watch say right now? I'm not wearing one because I just go by the sun over here, and I can tell you it's approximately about uh, 12.01. Okay, so my my computer says 11.56, my watch says 11.59, and my phone says 12.01. Well, the sun says to me about 12.01. All are connected to the same internet. My phone uses GPS and data, and my watch uses GPS, and the computer uses internet that all three use. I don't get it. I don't understand that either. It was an excuse, just an interesting aside that I have three different time zones I work in over in this office. That sounds like a subtle, subtle excuse to keep in mind in the one to three minutes. Only if I'm two minutes late or three minutes late. Correct. Because then I just pick the one that supports my current state of tardiness. Yeah, or earliness, depending. Or earliness. All right. Tell you what didn't lie. I thought I knew everything about you. Almost. Mm-hmm. I keep a few secrets from you, Kirk. Don't. Don't do that. What, what, uh, what didn't lie, Bracken? My my watch didn't lie this. Actually, you know, my watch did lie this weekend. Yeah, I did a three hour and 30 minute hill workout. And on Strava, it gave me 227 of moving time and 330 of elapsed time. And I never stopped my watch. You're just going so slow uphill. It didn't realize you were. Moving. No, I did a shoe change mm. and I did a couple pit stops. What were you doing in these pit stops back and wiping your butt? No, I was doing race sim. So I was. I was, uh, I, I did a, a full gear change at one point, shoe, sock, shirt, and just testing mm-hmm. everything out how I wanted to do it. I got a new pair of, uh, of lock lace style laces that I was testing out. And anyway, I, I intentionally don't stop my watch on those things. And it Strava paused me and then said my elapsed time didn't line up with my workout time. And I was disappointed in them. I wanted it to show the full 3.30. I wasn't trying to hide my times. You know, on, I have a handful of athletes who I question what's going on during their long runs. And so on Strava, mm-hmm. I always look at elapsed time. And for those athletes, <laughs> most of them's elapsed time is significantly longer than their moving time. And I always wonder what's going on in there. I don't think it's gear changes. Who knows? I'm testing out two shoes, testing out two shoes for Tennessee testing out uh, different anti-chafing devices. So I was lubing up mid-lap and all that stuff. It went as well as it possibly could have gone, Kirk. So I did an hour and a half. My first time I went out to do two hours and I made it 90 minutes before my Achilles soleus calf area said, it's about time to be done. 
Yeah. So I've been cutting, like, like we talked about, I've been cutting my big workouts, not big workouts, but my long runs and hill days short when my body says it's time to be done because I have months of atrophy to account for. Next mm-hmm. time I went out to do two and a half, I made it two. Next time I went out to do three, I made it two and a half. Each time I've been making it about a half hour longer before the same symptoms pop up. And this time I said, I'm doing 20 miles or 330, three hours and 30 minutes, whichever one comes first. Sorry, 21 miles or 330, whichever comes first. And I made it the full 330 with no worrisome issues. That's great. So I tacked an extra hour on this time rather than my half hour I've been tacking on. I think you're five weeks out. Is that right? Five weeks out as of two days ago. So I got 20 miles, about 6,000 feet of vert, which isn't entirely accurate. It's If you look at my chart, it shows me hitting two different peaks, one of them about 50 to 80 feet lower than the other, but it's the same hill. That always happens. So I'm thinking I got about 65, 6,700 feet, 20 miles, three and a half hours, and I cut down throughout the workout or held. I didn't slow ever. What a grind. It was great. I really like the... Uh... Four, ideally five weeks out for the last big effort before the adventure training for, and that I assume is your purpose, right? Five weeks out. Um, yeah. You can do it four. I like five, depending how big it is, but. I would have done three or four if it were a three hour event and I was only doing a two to three hour workout, but going to over three hours with that much descending, which is my point of emphasis for all yeah. of this is handle the pounding. I was just nervous of how long it would take me to systemically recover. But after the two and a half hour, I was hobbling for two days and I couldn't run for three or four and stairs were an issue and things were worrisome. And I woke up the next morning after this three and a half hour and thought, wow, I could run right now without even an issue. And so I was worried about waking up today. And today I woke up feeling even better, almost kind of springy this morning. So I think that last two and a half hour effort kind of like tipped the recovery and impact ball and back into my court rather than into the, the, the pain side of court. That's sweet, man. Good. Look how far you've come. It it felt like another corner turned. Yeah. And it's in good timing too. You're not cutting it too close. This is, this is apt timing for the event you have coming up. I feel like, like this far out, you're not cutting it too like, oh, I don't know if my body's going to be ready for this or come around. Like, this is a huge confidence booster. And now you can ride that for five weeks. Yeah. And it, it has me rethinking what I do the next month. Nah. I Well, my, my thought was I was going to try to recover for a week, week and a half after that big effort because it was going to leave me rocked. But I honestly feel like I could do it again tomorrow. I'm not going to, but rather than reduce and then coast on in, Part of me wants to keep building a little bit, at least maybe not long run, but volume. You could go another three hour run this upcoming weekend and then, and then start slowly dialing in. That's completely safe. I think I'm going to avoid descending this weekend, this entire week, but I think next weekend I'll do another two and a half, three, three, three weeks out. Yeah. Smart. Put the Nordic track to work maybe next weekend. This weekend I'll climb next weekend. I'll get another hill day test shoes one more time. Look at us being in sync again. Anyways, it was a great weekend. I was, I kept waiting for it to go bad. My goal was to be out there long enough for it to really go bad. And I started to about two hours get to that point where instead of crusting the hill and looking forward to squeezing some time out of the descents, I started crusting and thinking I could probably just pick my way through this. 
Mm. I got back on and focused and I stayed pretty much locked in the next hour and a half. So, and it rained all week here. So it was muddy and slippery going down. So I had to like stay engaged and chop and quick feet rather than flow the downhill. So it's kind of perfect worst case scenario for a race day because I couldn't, I couldn't roll the downhills. So my hip flexors were smashed at the end, but I was still hitting my times from the dry weeks. Okay. So this leads me to want to know, um, you know, a goal for this race. Now that things are clicking, I have to know that your wheels are probably starting to turn. I can tell you're excited. So can, can you go out there and maybe attempt for a win in this thing? You know, even though I'm starting to feel confident about being able to work for the entire six hours, I am refusing to look at this as a win versus lose or podium situation. I'm only approaching it as a goal for how many laps I cover in that in the time. Because in an ultra, all you can do is race your race. It's really difficult to plan for who shows up. And if someone shows up, like there's not a thing you can do about it. Like my, that, my first ultra, I, I, trail ultra I ran, Tyler Siegel showed up. Instantly losing is the only option out there. He's a, he might even be a U.S. champ. He's definitely been top five at U.S. champs for mm-hmm. ultra events. You know, I'm not physically capable of finishing within a half hour of him in a 50K. Mm. So suddenly if my only goal is win, the day's a failure and that's a, that's a long time to sit out there knowing I'm not getting my goal. So places don't matter to me until the last two hours of the race. Okay. So I'm only thinking laps, not place. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Yeah. But I mean, either way, this event's going to be a win for you looking at your past and the build to it. And the fact that you're at the starting line and even ready for that task after two meniscus surgeries, like, I think it's okay to have a little bit of a, a superficial goal, we'll call it, along with it, only because, like, when you cross that finish line, even if you take dead last, uh, the fact that you got yourself to that start line and are ready is the win itself. I really think so. The win yeah, was the process. Maybe. Exactly. But I absolutely have a goal and a stretch goal. My problem is that the stretch goal is starting to look potentially attainable, and it's going to be hard to go out there. So initially, I wanted to hit 28 laps which at 1.1 miles per lap would be 30.8 miles for the day with a few pitting is going to put me to a full 31 and that's a 50 K. And that feels Mm -hmm. like a good solid number to hit last year. We hit 21 laps okay, and 28 this year would feel really solid, but the number 30 is just so round and nice and sounds way better than twenties. So 30 was always the stretch goal, but that would require me to hit 12 minutes every lap all day long with no pit time, no transition time. Right. And last year we ran one lap. Our first lap was 1146 and every single one was above 12 finishing in the 16s and 18s. So this whole time on my loop, which pretty much roughly sims it as close as it can get, I've been holding 12 to 1220 every lap. Okay. But my lap is 1.18 or 1.19 miles, and the race lap is 1.1 even. So like that 10 to 20 seconds is just enough wiggle room to think that extra 0.08. That's a full 30 to 40 seconds, at least. Right. So if I take 30 seconds off my 20, now I'm 10 seconds in the black each lap. Exactly. So then I would need over the course of 30 laps 
I would have to build up enough of those 10 seconds to make way for any pit time. It would just be really snug. Mm-hmm. But it's starting to become like, a, what if I get rolling? I can't blow up and get that, but I could nail it and get that. So instead of going in thinking 28 is all I want, 30 be kind of crazy. Now I'm kind of caught in no man's land where I'm starting to dream about 30, even though I know I shouldn't. Listen, I want to win because I'm a winner. What did it take to win last year? 23 laps. Oh, in the bag. Lock it up. Stand on that podium. Cash in that fake check. Let's do it. <laughs> if the same people show up, yeah, 28 wins it. But last year was year one of this event. Okay. And from one, the best of year to always win is year one. So anyways, I don't care about the win. If I win, that's going to be fantastic. But I'm not allowed to think about racing until I finish hour four. That's fair. Then I can think about racing. Then you have two hours to try to make up all the time you want, which there's a lot to be made since there's so much up and downhill. But yep. four hour warm up, two hour race. <laughs> that's how you look at it. I, that's how I'm going to try to convince myself to. And I practiced that this weekend. I went out at 1330 the first lap to kind of give myself the oh shoot panic buttons. Went 1330, mm-hmm. 13 flat, 13 flat, and then cut down to 1220s and then held it under there. 11 high, 12 low the rest of the time just to see what it would feel like to try to build momentum. And it feels good. Way better than going 1140 and fading to 13. Mm-hmm. But you're right. You won't really know until the last two hours what your body and mind are going to give you that day. No. So I went 3.30 Saturday, knowing full well I can do this for another hour today, right now. All right. Which would leave me 90 minutes short. And race day gets you another. If it doesn't make you go out too hard, gives you another half hour to hour. And even if you're in survival mode for the last bit, if you have good momentum and you know your positioning is pretty solid, yeah. that's worth its weight and motivation. Got to be a little ahead, though, because the sun goes down at 4 o'clock and the race ends at 6 o'clock. So you, it's uh, headlamp the last hour 40, probably. No. Course gets more chewed up, so the descents get a little bit slower. So I think I got to have a little bit in the in the tank coming into that, but we'll see. Either way, the fact that I'm starting to dream about better results means that something was going right. So I had a big weekend for me, Kirk. It was a, it was one of those, I had the rest of the weekend. I felt good about my life because I nailed a big, long workout and it didn't destroy me the way I thought it should. Well, that's fantastic. Now I have high expectations and so do our listeners. I don't care what you, I don't care if you want to baby this. No, no, no. I have high expectations. Okay. All right. I just know that over the course of six hours, I can't let those expectations come out in the first hour or two. Yeah. Because that's how you blow up an ultra. True. All right. Smart man. Especially something lap-based. If something goes wrong, let's say lap 10, I have to do that same portion 20 more times. Yeah. It's not like I can hit a three-mile downhill or a flat section. Like It's just over and over and over. I can't, I can't lose one little part of me and let the others make up for it. All right. Well, looking forward to seeing how it shakes out. I'm glad you're pumped. Good. I know this is a big workout for you. You mentioned it was on the horizon. It's been scheduled and, you know, best case scenario. Yeah. No knee pain. Look at you. Yeah. What about your your weekend? You were out in the woods again? Oh, we don't. We've babbled 15 minutes about ourselves now. No, about myself. Well, I know, but isn't that enough for both of us collectively? <laughs> oh, no, Kirk. <laughs> I know you're running. I know you're hunting. 
Yeah. Can you tell I'm a little, uh, I look a little sick. It's starting to catch up with me. I, uh, got the whole sore throat rundown shit going. I get up at like four 30 in the morning and I go spend time out in the cold woods this time of year. And I love it. Um, but it's kind of a grind. And so still sneaking in my runs, you know, after getting back from the morning hunt and getting out and crushing the run wherever I am on these desolate County roads and through the farm fields and dogs that want to kill you running out of people's front yards, you know, that whole situation. Oh. That's the worst. Which is the worst. Yeah, I almost got in a fist fight with like a German Shepherd on Saturday, but he knew he knew what he was getting into and he decided to change his mind. He looked down, he saw Evo Speed Goats and he thought this isn't the guy to mess with. Now I'm gonna lead you into what you wanna you wanna talk about here, but I've been I never hop on the scale or check my weight ever. Ever, ever. I just don't care. But suddenly I have this weird, like interesting thing that my body has been doing in these last six or seven weeks where it's like, I've changed my style of lifting for those of, I guess I haven't really talked about it, but almost all my lifting right now is circuit style lifting. So I am doing assault bike strength wads, which means I gave this advice on one of our recent episodes about, Hey, you want to lose muscle, but still maintain functionality for OCR, like do your strength training in a circuit style aerobic fashion. So I'm going on the assault bike for two or so minutes hopping off, doing three uh, strength exercises, hopping back on the assault bike for two minutes. So I'm averaging like 130 to 145 heart rate for a strength workout. And thus it's limiting my overall strain and weights that I can use. So on top of that, and then also with cutting out drinking, the, the scale, like I'm eating like a pig and the scale just keeps like plummeting. And so it's super bizarre because I haven't seen these weights on the scale and this is not by design necessarily, but um, it just keeps going down and I don't know what to make of it. I haven't seen it in years and I don't care one way or the other, but all I know is I'm getting fast as shit. <laughs> and it's, and it's an interesting thing to do, to see happen when it's not really an intent. It's just cleaning up your nutrition and then changing the style of strength training I'm doing. I feel functionally very fit. I just have nowhere to use any of this right now. So it's interesting to go and click off like low sixes for my long run on Saturday on a body that didn't want to do it. And, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a nice feeling. How far did you go? I went 16 on Saturday, but mostly flat, like 700 feet of gain or something. And you ran low six the whole time? Uh, I think it was like 610 or 612 average for it. For 16? With, yeah. It's not slow. No, it felt good. It was conversational. <laughs> <laughs> So I've done 16 at 610 or 620 when I was fit, but the conversation stopped at about mile 10 and turned into practically a race to finish at that. I know I've never, ever gone 610 conversational for 16. I think I, I mean, nobody was there with me, but except I chatted with that. German you know, shepherd. you know, with your breathing, if you're conversational or not. Yeah. So uh, but anyways, so I'm kind of setting you up for something you want to talk about, which is weight, um, really quick. And I purposely did that smooth, but before yeah. I do, uh -huh. your answer leads me to ask, mm -hmm. are you starting to think about pulling the trigger on a race, some sort of race, any sort of race to use this fitness? Yeah, I might go down to Florida in December, uh, for the beast, I don't know, sprint I weekend or that. something. Uh, mostly because I haven't been doing a lot of nasty terrain and I haven't been climbing and descending because I just, my knee's been an issue, which we don't need to get into. But um, 
So it would just be something fun to do. And I'd probably actually take my reset after that to give my body a breather and plenty of time to build for next season. Like there's no panic button to push on fitness after that. So my buddy TJ and his wife are going down to race that TJ is a guy we had on the podcast who did the Utah ultra. And I might, I might, I'll decide here in the next few weeks, but um, I haven't done a lick of grip work in like four months, but other than that, uh, you know, details, I guess. Um, Well, this would be like a no expectations, just go to have a weekend. Um, I may not do any grip work beforehand. I may just let my natural athleticism either carry me or not. And, you know, I'm enjoying the training pattern I'm in without any expectations right now. And I'll start caring come, you know, about February 2022, we'll say. There's only one thing that'll potentially trip you up if you don't do any grip. And that is those thick black ropes at the end of the rig. Mm Mm-hmm. But I did that in Ohio in an utterly trashed state and I made it through and it was ugly and I almost missed. In fact, I started spinning counterclockwise on one because I had to let go. It was too slick and then I, it was bad mm. and I made it through. So if I made it through, you'll make it through. They, and you got those small hands. I got these hands, <laughs> a man hands. I, uh, I believe you can grab, I mean, nobody, this is an OCR world. You can grab the chain where it meets the rope on top and nobody's going to bat an eyelash. Not saying you should, but there's nothing in the rule books. And I know athletes in age group, one of my athletes mentioned it was suggested to them as they were hesitant grabbing the ropes. Not saying I'm going to do that because I'm not a ninny, but worst case scenario. (laughs) I had worst case scenario. Robert Koble was talking to me as I got on the obstacle. Oh yeah, that is worst case scenario. Yeah, who who is at the peak of the the officiating pyramid was watching, and and I don't like grabbing the top because the oh, in OCR we see this all the time, and in trail running that there's this concept of following the intent and the spirit of the course. I agree. Where if the course takes you through something and there's an option to go around it, but you know the the event director, the course designer intended you to go through it, you're supposed to go through it. Well, why would you hang? a thick rope to swing through. If all you had to do was grab the attachment at the top, there'd be no point of hanging anything. They would just have the attachment. So I like to follow the spirit of the obstacle, Kirk, because I'm a purist. You know, if you were in front of the race without droves of people in front of you, those ropes wouldn't have been muddy and slick. If you were just leading the race, they would have been dry and pristine, but somebody couldn't hang bracken and that's the price you got to pay for falling behind. You know, there's no lies in that statement. <laughs> I was thoroughly dropped. I'm just saying. But I'm going to go back to that race next year on principle. And I'm going to hammer them on principle. Cool. I'll see you there. Um, all right. I want you, you to let get me into your, weight. I, well, I led you into weight. And I just want to say my relationship with my weight is out of like pure curiosity. It's just like fascinating to me that my body is doing these things after mistreating it for a a while and then treating it well it's like oh you feed your body whole food good nutrition and you cut out booze and other junk that doesn't matter and suddenly your body like becomes a better oiled machine it's weird how that works and not by intent suddenly you realize you're getting better gas mileage and the ride's a little smoother and suddenly like you're coasting down the hills or keeping your speed up with less effort and you don't do any of that with like the intended outcome. You just focus on the little pieces every day. And suddenly like, huh, it's just like, it's more like light bulb moments for me than anything. Just with like, oh, the body is still capable of doing what it's intended to if you don't put speed bumps everywhere in front of it. And so it's just interesting. 
and so that that's all I was getting at. I have no real relationship with the scale, luckily. Um, and I'm thankful for that, but it's just been a fascinating byproduct of taking care of oneself that um, I didn't expect. I thought nothing would change if I'm being honest. I would have bet money that my physique was my physique. And little did I know that putting poison in it every day was not the answer. And a lot of extra calories. Oh, correct. And that also came with eating worse. So anyways, yeah. I'm I'm leading you into something that you wanted to address really quick, which I think is valid. Uh, so I'm glad you brought it up. I wanted to chat about it real quick. Uh, so why don't you? Well, we have had two coaches interviews now where we talk about training principles. And in the first one with Richard, we talked about Alberto Salazar and we talked about some of his controversy. And then with Ian, we talked about Salazar briefly and Nike and Oregon with their current controversy with their female track and field program where they had athletes um, perform DEXA scans which is something, not DEXA, that brand, but something we've promoted on here, which is getting a body composition scanned to know before you attempt any sort of weight loss because you need to know if you even need or even are a candidate for that. So we've addressed all that, but we got some messages, Kirk. Um, Probably enough that it's a trend Mm -hmm. of people saying that we missed an opportunity to take a stand on healthy conversations about weight that we didn't address what happened at Oregon and with Salazar, and we didn't correct or or engage in a debate with the coaches we were talking to when they talked about weight. It's a tough position to be in because today is Tuesday and it's our opportunity to talk. And Friday, when it is an interview with somebody else, it is their opportunity to talk. And we can clean up with our own opinions on Tuesdays if necessary. And so like following up a weight loss episode that we had done and spoke very openly and uh, and caringly about the approach to weight loss and the relationship to weight loss, um, we navigated that the best we could. So it was a tough position to be in to then just reopen or rehash that door a week or two later when we recently just had. So um, you can continue, but just to know that there was no intent. No. And yet there was intent. You know, we, we, we've done this, like we free wheel a lot of our topics, but we have absolute intent with how we talk about them. Like, even if we, someone, if sometimes we say, all right, we press record, what do you want to talk about? And then we go, that's random, but the core principles of what we believe, we still infuse into everything we talk about. Like there is absolute intent with all of that. And we had just spent an entire hour talking about our feelings on weight loss and how to safely do it. And then an episode later, we have an interview where it comes up again and we weren't looking to insert our beliefs in it. And we were a hundred percent certain that we've covered it so many times that everyone knows our stance and they're not coming here to hear our stance on another coach's interview. They're here to learn what is that coach's stance on it. Because we've made our platform abundantly clear. We don't want to hit people over the head with it. We don't want to be a one-trick pony during someone else's interview. Mm -hmm. The second piece is that we didn't, right after Rich Rich talked about Salazar, we didn't talk about what's going on in Oregon the next training Tuesday. And some people messaged saying, you've missed an opportunity for an ongoing story that's affecting young women in this country to take a stand and use your platform for good. It was kind of a cop-out. 
Mm-hmm. I understand where they're coming from, but the fact is, how many hot takes have we had on our podcast ever? Not many. I would think zero. We don't do reactionary takes. There was one or two if I think hard about it, but very minimal. Not on a serious topic. I agree. On a topic that matters on anything performance or health related, we've not yet ever done a hot take. And the situation that's happening at Oregon is what? At the time when that episode came out, 72 hours old? Uh, if that. There, there is nowhere near enough time for both sides to have the true facts out. What we had at that point were a group of female athletes who came out and made statements about an unhealthy situation that occurred at Oregon. That's it. Now, I am nowhere near in the camp of victim blaming or shaming or discrediting. However, I also believe that we have to see due process carried out. I will wholeheartedly take a stand and denounce one side or the other once all the facts are out, but we don't know yet. Was this like five or six athletes out of 50 over that year that had a bad relationship with someone there and just decided to take a stand? Or were they speaking for everyone? Like that's an important thing to get out there first. And I don't want this to be misconstrued as I don't trust the victims because they have every right to say everything without judgment. But I do want to make sure that no one's railroaded by me until I'm confident that I should be railroading. Right. And so giving it 72 hours to me was like the bare minimum of what I should responsibly do with my platform. I didn't see it as a missed opportunity with my platform. I approached it as a, I have a platform that's self-created and enough people have now decided that they'll tune into and listen to us talk about something that I can't erode it with a hot take that has no fact behind it yet. So my position of not speaking was a position of, I support weight and mental health and physical health so strongly that I will not erode my stance by firing off something before I know more about it. So rest assured that we will discuss it, but not on anyone else's timeline. And I want everyone to truly understand that. You know, Kirk and I care about this. You know that we're not pushovers. We're not afraid to stand up and talk about something if it needs to be talked about. As we've both proved over the last couple episodes, if something's important, we're going to talk about it, but only when the timing's right. So That's not really a rant. It's not really a soapbox. It's somewhere in the middle. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, You you start a podcast. People start to listen to you. And then you have chosen responsibility on your shoulders to put the right content out there. That is a privileged position we have put ourselves in. So we can't say it's not our responsibility because it is our responsibility. We've chosen that responsibility. But... You know, if anybody wanted to put something like that conversation under a microscope in that context, I would ask for just like a little forgiveness and understanding of the circumstances being almost two hours into an episode uh, on a topic we discussed a few weeks prior in which like taking a stance without knowing all the facts would be actually the wrong thing to do. That would be a disservice to our listeners. So if you want to message us about it directly or personally, that's fine. But you also have to provide maybe a little grace under the circumstances that we're doing our best here. We are in a privileged position of responsibility. However, I don't really think being scrutinized is terribly fair in that circumstance. And that's just my opinion, Um, especially given the fact that things were so fresh and the circumstances and the fact we addressed it recently. Um, I I don't really know where I'm getting at with that, but just like, you know, grace and understanding is is, goes Mm -hmm. a lot further than scrutiny. So. that's all I really have to say about that. 
we're in a time and age of firing off reactions. Yeah. You can show the entire world your thoughts in 153 characters or less really quickly. Yeah. And I think it's dangerous. I really do. I think that we have an abundance of false or improper information out there. And we do our best to try to steer clear of that. And one of our big fears on this podcast is taking the route that sometimes success brings you, which is becoming a caricature of yourself. Where the things that bring you notoriety or respect or a platform become your only calling card. And then you lead with that no matter what. And eventually you're just known as the blank person. And you know that if there is a weight scandal out there, Bracken and Kirk are going to nail it immediately. The second they hear about it, we're going to charge full ahead and railroad them. We don't want to become that. Mm-hmm. We want to be the type of people that when we do make a statement, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, you at least know we took our time and researched it and thought it through. 100%. And it's it's a big fear of us that that we do something to erode our credibility. And a hot take, in my opinion, is not what we want to become. So that's all I have to say on it. It was a decently long mini rant slash sermon slash something, but I'm done now. A sermon would be quite a compliment to <laughs> what you just gave us, but okay, I like it. I mean, sermon can be can be non non religious in nature. It's standing up and, and disseminating information. Well, you did that. Well, you're sitting down, but other than that, nailing it. You don't know. I could be crouching. Uh, no, I can see where you. What shirt am I wearing? You're wearing the Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday shirt. I recognize that color. Uh, stand, stand up. Yeah, Let me see. Sucker Tuesday. There it is. Um, anything else you want to say about that? No, no, that's it. Okay. Well, here's the deal, folks. Uh, we're we're terrible, not for what you just talked about, Bracken, but we're terrible because we have like forty plus right now Q and A questions that we have not gotten to, and I feel like there's talking about people maybe being upset. They're like, I asked you a damn question. A month and a half ago, and you guys can't even answer it yet. It's because we're just overwhelmed. So I figure we um we chip away at a few of these. I'm never overwhelmed. Yeah, right. So do you want to chip away at a few of these, Brackenstein? I do with one disclaimer, Kirk. Oh, boy. We talked about we were going to recap and break down and kind of give more detail on people's episodes after we interview them. Mm-hmm. But... Ian was just super clinical and cut and dry about everything he talked about. Yeah. And unlike Rich, he didn't have a new system that he himself had created that needed more, more breakdown. He's, he's following not old school, but other people's science. And I mean that in the the nicest way he's followed the scientific minds. How many times did he Mm -hmm. reference different, different doctors that he researches? Whereas Rich started with that kind of thing and then created his own system. So we felt the need to break that down. Ian's was super black and white, cut and dry. And so we're not really going to break it down. If you have specific questions, send it in and maybe we'll do a breakdown in a future episode. But for now, I feel confident that he said exactly what he meant and everyone understood it because it's stuff they've heard before. Yeah, that conversation was a great balance of bullshit and knowledge bombs. I like it. I enjoyed that conversation. Okay, for context, this uh, question goes all the way back to August 29th. So we're of this year, though. Of this year, yeah. So I guess that 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 that's a check mark in the positives column for you. That's a win. 
so we might be a little behind with some of the specifics of these questions, but we're gonna we're gonna do this like elevator pitch sort of answering platform, I think, and just bang out a couple, keep you entertained for maybe the next half hour, and then we'll we'll just you know constantly be behind forever on these things. Does that sound good? That sounds like our ammo. All right, Nate. Nate says, I've never run West Virginia. That's how you know this is how far back we are. <laughs> I've never ran West Virginia till this year and trained wrong for it. With that being said, what's your guys' thoughts on the 24 to 36 hours after uh, races that completely trash you? Nutrition, macros, active recovering, stretching, etc. Along the same lines, you ran into so many people doing the trifecta. There is no, in capital letters, way I could pull off a super and sprint today. I could do the sprint if I needed, but not a super or both. My question's there. What about nutrition for a mountain trifecta? Uh, he continues to go on, but I think we get the point. So what are the things you do in the 24 to 36 hours after a race that you feel completely wrecked afterwards? I rest, as, I rest, eat, and drink as much as I can in chunks. I try to break it up with movement to keep my blood pumping and keep areas flooded with nutrients. And so even if that means walking or slow fan bike to just move my upper and lower body or do the Kempson style and do the Berdanko method in a pool. Something that gets you moving while taking zero impact Mm -hmm. while overloading your body with nutrients and hydration and rest. That's it. Yeah. Um, For me, are you kidding me? The 24 to 36 hours after a race, this is barring. I don't have another one in the next week or two is absolutely whatever the heck I want to do. I want pizza, go eat pizza. I, you know, want to socialize afterwards, socialize afterwards. There's no tomorrow for me, if I'm being honest, especially if I don't have a race. If I have a race coming up that matters, great. But like, it's time to celebrate your hard work. Like go, if you're a drinker, have a beer at the beer tent and go, you know, celebrate. If you don't get too much sleep that night, so be it. You got the rest of the week to make up for it. I'm a firm believer of completely decompressing and just allowing you to do whatever the heck you want because you've been stringent about your lead up. And so like, it's okay to decompress. That's actually beneficial in an odd way to your recovery long-term. So like for me, anything goes. And that's what's helpful for me. You can get back to your schedule once you fly home and work the kinks out. Again, asterisks with, there's no race next weekend. If there is a race the next weekend or recovery is really important, then I get right to protocols, make sure I get sleep, get rehydrated, eat some better food, do those things. So that's what I would be my short answer to that. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's just me. I like it. And I think the more important question is the how are other people handling this and I'm not question. First of all, there's some genetics behind that. I'm a person that really struggles to race back-to-back days. Always have. However, there are times in my life that I've been pretty decent at it. And it's always when I'm in monster shape. It's always when I'm preparing and doing a good amount of volume with big long runs and long workouts. And an example of that would be, I want to, ah, it doesn't matter the year. There was a year I did a, a beast one day and there's a sprint the next morning. I was already there, had the hotel for the next night. So there's a 13 mile trail race, got up the next morning and went back to bed because I could barely walk to the bathroom. Just skip the race. The next year, after another year in Colorado running big, long, two, three, four hour days in the mountains, I raced two beasts, 13 mile tra- trail races, which are like 14 and a half at the time, back to back days in Hawaii. A lot of vert, a lot of sloppy terrain. I didn't carry hydration or fuel either day. I had on minimal racing shoes, which I never wear for beasts. It was the old Reebok all terrains. Mm-hmm. And I raced 
a total of 28 or 29 miles in two days with no fueling. And I ran faster on day two. Mm-hmm. So it really comes down to, are you following the Fred Clary approach of being ready for 120% of your competition? Or were you ready to survive at best your competition? When you're yeah. totally destroyed and depleted, you're right. There is no option to even step out there the next day. But when the competition is not as difficult as the work you put in, that's when you can race multiple times in a weekend. Yeah. You bring up a good point. What did your training really look like before that? Were you prepared for the task at hand? And obviously uh, not perfectly if you were completely wrecked. And there's a thing, you can be completely prepared and be completely wrecked still. They do go sometimes hand in hand, but uh, I agree with that. Next question. Kayla Maddox says, I've only been running for two years and not had any formal training like cross country or track. What is the best way for me to learn proper running form and learn how uh, learn how to correct it without someone who knows what proper running form is watching and training me. Um, that's exactly how it's written. So what do you think? Well, I was going to say, if you really are concerned, go to a clinic. Right. But if you can't do that, then you're going to need a screen to watch someone with great running form and show you the different cues and mechanics in a mirror or a video recording you to watch yourself. You have to see it visually on someone else and then see it on yourself and practice doing it correctly while watching yourself so that you can get those mental cues to become physical cues that stick when you can't see yourself visually. Doing that on your own is so tough. And, and it's something you need to feel more than you almost need to see because you're not always going to have that luxury, right. Of being able to look so, and how you feel doesn't always correlate with how you look. We've had that conversation. You feel like a gazelle running across the plains of Africa. And then you see a video of yourself and you look like a moose trudging through the swamp. And you're like, that doesn't correlate. The old swamp moose. Yeah. The old swamp moose. You know, you never want to look like that swamp moose, but um, I don't know. I don't even know if I dare say I suggest, I mean, you can try to clean it up on your own, but typically people don't get very far. Typically Mm -hmm. you need a little bit more help from like somebody. Some people can see and feel cues. They can learn through visual reps and others just can't. And it depends which camp you're in. If you can't, then you have to go to outside help. And that's, that's the unfortunate truth. Yeah. I think I'd leave it at that. Got anything else? Nope. J Cruz 15. Uh, so fun question for the next Q and a and totally not a serious question. So if you don't answer it, no hard feelings. Okay. Uh, if you could build your perfect OCR athlete, which athletes past or present would you take attributes from such as speed, ability, and strength? And to make it more fun, they can be athletes from any sport. So let's stick with it. Speed, agility, and strength. Let's use those three. What athletes would you mash up? I'm going to stick to men. Okay. Because I think it's more appropriate for me to talk about physical attributes of men than women. Fair. And I'm going to to add more in there as well. But what was the first one? Well, he's saying examples, but uh, speed, agility, and strength. Okay. I'm going to start with frame. I'm going to take VJ Jones's frame. Yeah. Long, lean, ability to pack on muscle if he wants to, but ability to stay strong while light. So I'm starting with that. I'm going to take Hobie Call's stride. He has the best turnover, the lightest, most efficient, never breaking down stride I've ever seen. He spends the least time in contact with the ground out of any OCR athlete. And he has the ability to keep that form on all terrains, all types of terrain, uphill, downhill, soft, nasty, rough, hard ground. It doesn't matter. 
I'm going to take Ryan Atkins recovery ability. Mm. I'm going to take Ryan Kempson's ability to completely empty the tank. And I think it would be foolish not to take Hunter's strength. Pretty good. So you stayed within the sport. Oh yeah. I'm not going outside because it'd be easy to say, give me Eliud Kipchoge's speed endurance and give me Courtney DeWalter's mental fortitude and enduring capability in her body and give me Alan Webb's top end speed and explosion and maybe Usain Bolt's fast twit. I, I, you know, that's, that's just plain a freak show there, but sticking within the sport, that's who I'm building. Okay. I like it. Oh, might as well take Johnny Luna Lima's technical downhill all out bombing. And then I will take John Albin's it. Whatever he's got that ties everything of his together. I might just choose John Albin. You can't just pick all the best people in the sport and then assign them an attribute and take I just it. did. It's my podcast. Now it's yours. Your podcast, make yours. Make your athlete. I can do it in 10 seconds. I'm going to take, as far as PRs go and raw ability, I'm going to take Mark Bottas's speed. I'm going to take Aaron Newell's proprioception and agility to move through space. I'm going to take my own strength because I ain't no loser. That's it. Done. We don't need to dwell on this one. I think you answered. You just basically highlighted the best of the best in all there. Let's start completely fresh. You get to pick two people and mash them together, and they cannot have been a world champion. They cannot have been a world championship. I'm going to take uh, Ryan Wood's raw engine, and I'm going to mash it together with Aaron Newell's uh, obstacle ability. Wow. I was going to take Woods, too, because he's actually faster than Botrys. Yeah, he is. And now I think about it. <laughs> yeah. I'll mash Ryan Woods together with me. Ooh. How about that? I gave you the idea to keep yourself in the equation. Don't be thieving. That's true. Um, you don't doubt my ability to bring it back to me. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> in like the most humble way it's you fake. could possibly fake say. Fake humility. Chloe Conlin says, a running question. Two weeks out before a marathon, trail course with 1,250 feet of elevation gain and drop. Uh, then... I can't read some of it because if you see, it says a move to primary thing right in the middle of the conversation. Mm. Uh, Or do you suggest a walk or spin bike workout? That's where it picks up. I am so sorry, Uh, Chloe. (laughs) Well, we failed you twice. First of all, this race has already passed. Oh, right. So for next year. If I turn up the brightness, I got it. Sorry, I turned up the brightness. I can read through the shadow. Should rest days be total rest days where I don't exercise at all? Or do you suggest a walk or a spin bike workout? Do you recommend stopping or continuing doing strength, including body weight stuff and PT band work for glutes? This is not my first marathon. It's my sixth, but I'm a little more invested and interested after listening to so many of your podcast episodes. Thanks. There's no wrong way to answer this. I don't think as long as you have rationale. So I'm going to take one way of doing it. If I'm two weeks out, that's the day to take off days. If I'm race week, I say you keep moving, but gently. Hey, it's that law, right? An object in motion wants to stay in motion. An object at rest wants to stay at rest. And your body, the week of a race, likes motion. Even if that means going for a brisk walk instead of a run that day, it much prefers uh, movement versus stagnancy. Your systems are all being primed and kept in check. So I agree with you. Two weeks out, sure, take an extra off day or two. But that week of, keep the blood flowing, baby. Yeah, I like it. Move on. Short and sweet. Move on. Delete. 
Chloe, you've been deleted. All right. Mark Polzine says, what are the best shoes for a high rocks event? Any idea if they standardize the same surface for the sled push pull stations, or is it different every venue? You got the firsthand experience, brother. So there are two types of, of pavement at concrete at, uh, at high rocks. The sleds are going to be the same. Always. It's stupid. Unless you're overseas. If you're overseas, wear whatever shoes you want. And I would say the craziest super shoes you can get. But if you're in the U.S., you have to find the shoe that's the mix of running and some grip. And they have two types of pavement. One is kind of that raw concrete. The other is polished. If it is raw concrete, any shoe will corner well. If it is polished concrete, you need a shoe with actual rubber on the bottom in order to turn well. So again, I will not tell you what shoe to do high rocks in, but the absolute best mix of everything is the Fuel Cell RC Elite 1 from New Balance, which you can't really buy anymore. The two, they changed the bottom. The one is the only super shoe with decent lugs on it. But Saucony Endorphin Speed or Pro is a pretty solid option as well if you're going super shoe. Otherwise, I think the best all-around shoe is the Brooks Hyperion Tempo. Not the Hyperion Elite, the Hyperion Tempo. It's got good flash DNA midsole. That's one of their nitrogen-infused midsoles. And it has good amount of rubber coverage on the bottom, but it's a neutral, normal shoe just with a bit of super-ish foam to it. So it's a normal, accessible shoe for everyone. I would have given that exact same answer verbatim, Bracken. Wow, look at us. I mean... Mind meld. Just kidding. You know way more about that than I do. Mark Nesky. How do you optimize your sleep? Are resources available for competitive athletes to go beyond internet advice and sleeping pills and help optimize recovery? Thanks for the podcast. I enjoy every minute. Oh, man. I I guess I don't know. Optimize is a very generic term. I don't know if they're just trying to get more of it, better sleep, or if they struggle to find time. I think you start by prioritizing time for sleep. And then you start by prioritizing a better rhythm before sleep. And all those are online. Honestly, if you're to the point where the online resources don't work, then it's time for a professional. If you're to sleeping pills, it's time for a professional help. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's just making enough time. That simple. Make enough time. Set it aside so you're not always scrambling. Um, that's the biggest key for me anyways is just managing your life before you go to bed in which, and, and don't, don't force yourself to go from 100 to sleep. I find a period of time where you can actually like shut your brain off, watch an episode of the office instead of bury yourself in work emails till you go to bed or something like that just goes such a long way. So, um, Bracken, is that a, is that a hickey on your neck? Doesn't it look like it? <laughs> I was wrestling Mira and she kicked me in the throat and her big toe just like gouged right in between muscle strands there. And the next day there was nothing. And over the course of the last two weeks, it turned into a bruise and now it's fading. It's a hickey. I can tell. I've never had a hickey in my life. Do you know that? Uh, doubtful. I, I haven't. For the first 18 years of my life, no one wanted to. And after that, I thought it was trashy looking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so no, this is a big toe imprint from my four-year-old. <laughs> wow. Don't mess with that one. So I just really got distracted. You're like... The collar of your shirt just got stretched for a second. And it was like, what on earth have you been into? <laughs> the last thing I'll say about sleep is that you is, I like something you said a long time ago, which is you have to pay now on that. 
you can't wait till you've got a good night's sleep to start whatever, you know, workout or getting up in the morning, which is what we were talking about then. But you also can't start with sleeping pills and wean yourself off. You have to start with bad sleep the right way and progress into better sleep the right way. Correct. So if you have a routine that doesn't work yet, but you know it will, you have to follow it rather than saying, I'm going to knock myself out following this routine and then take a pill. And then over time, wean myself off. It's just not a provable success story there. It's get through some bad nights of falling asleep until your body's tired enough that your routine works. It's 100%. You're going to go through like an acclimation phase, which sucks. Yes. It's like you might not fall asleep. You don't be up till three in the morning and then only get two and a half hours of sleep because your alarm goes off at 530 and you do it. You don't change your routine. Eventually, you're so dog yep. tired. You can't wait. And it's 730 one night. You fall asleep and wake up at 530 the next day and you're like, whoa. And then somehow your body's forced in that routine. Yep. And that's the key that you said. You don't snooze the alarm. No matter how long it takes to fall asleep, you still continue your routine. Your body will break down and allow you to sleep eventually. I mentioned this because uh, a gym member at the gym I, I trained out of went through this and from a professional, basically sleep coach. And it was your alarm goes off at 530 every day. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter how bad your sleep. You, you need to your two rules. Your alarm goes off at 530 every day and you must work out. Uh, here are the rules. That's it. You have no other choices. And oh, yeah, no naps are allowed either. There is none of this midday shit. You force your body into it. And he was miserable for like a week week and a half and he's been happier and healthier and looking better. The bags are gone under his eyes and he's just been a, a much more productive. So um, Jeremy Whitley, Whitley, Jeremy, who's been reaching out to me a lot since I released that episode about uh, what I've been going through, checking in on me. So Jeremy, appreciate you, brother. It's good man. Question for your next Q and a based on your recent checklist training Tuesday. This is from September 9th. So we're not even close to, to present day. Semi-recent. Mm, same season. I walk daily on my treadmill desk while working. It only goes to 2.5 miles per hour for two plus hours. Most days I put on a hiking pack with 60 pounds, walk for an hour or so, then just walk for a few hours. Around lunchtime, I'll go hit the rower or an assault bike for a circuit 75 minutes to zone two. That typically adds up to about three hours or more of time on feet. Your September 7th episode talked about volume and elevated heart rate. My heart rate does not get very elevated, not near zone two during the walking portion of this scenario. Does my volume here count towards the time on feet portion of my training plan? If so, do I count it as recovery or does the ruck walk row structure I noted above count as a long quality effort? I know that recovery volume counts, but I just want to check this box. You guys rock. That is a question right there. Yeah, it's a good one. I understand why it was so long because it needed to be in order to understand it. Do you want to start or should I jump in? Um, the answer is what are you training for? Yes. So what are you training for? If you're training for an ultra, damn it, this is called purposeful time on feet. If you're running sprints and high rocks, I'm going to tell you that I don't see it translating terribly to your performance on those courses. That's going to be my short answer. Yeah. In terms of whether you count it as quality or not, or if it's recovery or easy, really comes down to what response does it generate in your body? Mm -hmm. A, what event are you training for? Like you said. But B, what happens on your other days? And this is why I'm a proponent of having quality work in a program. Because it very quickly shines light on what the other days are doing to you. If you get done with that day and you can't hit a quality, let's say, interval session or threshold work or hill workout the next day, it was not easy or recovery. Right. 
Even if heart rate didn't get up, if you can't do it, it didn't serve those purposes. But if you can, now you get to count it as ancillary skill work and time on feet. And so you have to know what it's doing to you. And that's why quality work, we, we talk about quality work all the time, mm-hmm. doing true quality interval threshold long run sessions. And even if you're not training towards a race, having even one session of this per week clarifies what the other work does to you because you can slog through an easy run feeling crappy or great and it doesn't matter but you can't fake thousand meter repeats or a 40 Mm. minute threshold run and it isn't gonna make you a less happy person to be a little more fit but it will clarify what your other days are doing yep i agree how your quality days going are they going well then sure, this is a recovery day and you're nailing it. Mm-hmm. Are you feeling sluggish? Then obviously something's going on. You need to maybe reassess. Um, That's a good question though. Yeah. Adding weight to easy efforts systemically changes what you're doing, even if your heart rate doesn't necessarily show it. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, because your heart rate isn't going to show. Let's say you go and do heavy squats one day and your heart rate data from that workout isn't going to show much aerobic stimulus at all and then you can barely walk for three days well yeah that is affecting even though the aerobic benefit is minute if that time with weight is tiring out your legs or body just enough in which is taking away from your quality day regardless of the aerobic benefit what is it doing you know to your musculature and such just yeah your joints your ligaments all that your feet been hurting a little on your runs well maybe there's a reason why you know yeah I get into this with power hiking on easy days, hip flexors sometimes mm. ache in the next day. And I think I shouldn't do an interval session, even though my heart rate was 111 the day before. Yeah. Um, Icor Mark, another longer one. Let's see. As all of us are extreme overachievers with addictive personalities, we all have an addictive personality. Whether anyone says they don't is bullshit. If you're actually competing in this sport, the difference is anxiety. Stress, family, life, or lack of structure can easily yield one to come home and just relax with a beverage. This come out October 6th. Okay, this is after my episode. That makes sense. Um, Okay, my question to add to the next one is for Kirk. And uh, was it just the gut issue or was there some feeling of boredom that stemmed from the beginning of the slow onslaught? Boredom is the only time I seek a drink to mellow out and it isn't ideal, but not a problem. But when you get to a high level and then come down from it, especially last year, boredom is a huge reason just to say F it. But most high achievers are driven to routines. He goes on, but that's the gist of the question. Well, I'll take this one. <laughs> okay, go, go right ahead, Bragan. <laughs> what do you have to say? No, Kirk, I'm just joshing you. I'm um, sure boredom can play into it, especially you know any habit that you have. It's, you could go into people who chew tobacco or smoke cigarettes, they go hand in hand. And then you layer in things like socially. And then if it is managing anxiety, then it becomes medicine and you can combine all those two and it becomes a blurry slush of bullshit that isn't serving you. Um, It's different for everybody. It really is. I can only speak for me and it was directly related to a number of things, but boredom would be lower on my list. It wasn't boredom. It was like, I have a headache. I'm going to take ibuprofen. Well, I feel X, so I'm going to drink alcohol. It wasn't a boredom. It was based off a feeling, which would be the opposite almost of boredom for me. So I, I understand. I think people who have a healthy relationship with substances or alcohol. Again, I'm not an expert. I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, if I'm being honest. 
Um, it's typically not out of boredom. Um, it's a solution to a problem. So I would say that you're actually, if you're drinking out of boredom, not that I'm saying you don't have an issue, but most likely you don't have an issue. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? That's how I feel about it. I think that everyone has a reason they do what they do. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to generalize, well, you know, boredom is the big thing. And maybe for you it is. But the, the point is less about what the thing is and more about why the thing is and how to prevent it. Yeah. If boredom's your thing, sure. Does it apply to everyone else? No. Some people, yes. But you've identified it's your thing. So now you have to script your time until you can legitimately healthily handle boredom. Yeah. And that's it. I agree. Yeah. And it's not a drinking problem. It's a drinking solution. Like that's a more accurate description. The problem is that the solution thus creates a problem. Yeah. So um, should we do two more quick ones? I know you got to go. Yeah, let's do two. Let's go two more quick ones. Um, All right. Ilonate. God butchered that. I'm sorry, whoever you are. Um, Hello. I hope you don't mind that I'm reaching out for a recommendation. Border restrictions permitting, I'm aiming to get back from Asia to Europe this Christmas. I'm not an expert on uh, international travel right now, but let's see where this goes. Uh, Which will make it my first ever year running in winter weather for more than a few days. I recall you both recommending winter jackets in a few episodes earlier this year, and having barely finished Tahoe in 2019, I was hanging on to all the tips. But having gone back and re-listened to the Winter Running Podcast, I can't find details on the windbreaker waterproof you recommended. We'd be very grateful if you could share the details. Easy. Patagonia Houdini. That's the first thing we talked about. Yep. Listen, you're asking the right people. Mm-hmm. We have all facets of winter weather here. And really, I think you got to have one of everything. I think that Patagonia Houdini falls into the windbreaker slash water repellent line. It is not waterproof, and I think that's okay. I think it's the best one-size-fits-all solution to have. My, I, my, my brother and I both had a Nike jacket for years. It was DWR-coated. It repelled water, but if it rained, you got wet. Mm-hmm. And it solves most issues because winter, you don't get soaked. You get wind, you get snow falling on you, and then it, it brushes off or rolls off if it melts. So that's a good place to start. I also encourage having a soft shell. I have the a Solomon soft shell quarter zip that I wear all the time. It has more venting on it. So you can stay warm, but you don't get that sweat buildup. And then if you really want waterproof, you've got to step up another 100 to 150 $200 in price. So true waterproofing, you don't have to step up in that price. You can get it anywhere. But if you want to be able to breathe in that waterproofing, you're looking at 250 to $400 for a good jacket. And the ones we're recommending are 60 to 100 bucks. If we're talking winter running, then the world is your oyster as far as options go. But if we're talking OCR specific, where you're getting in and out of water, um, I don't like waterproof, and I'm sure you don't either. Like the Patagonia Houdini is that thin enough where, sure, you can jump in the water with it, but it's so thin and light that it, if you're running, it dries itself off within like five, 10 minutes, it's back to dry after getting into something, whereas a waterproof water gets in there down your neck or up your sleeves, it's going to stay in there because it's much less breathable. So like for talking OCR, like I think it's an easy answer. And that is something that's going to dry itself quickly and not trap 
you know, yeah. as much in it. But if you're talking winter running and then, then the options that you're talking about are fantastic. I just wouldn't wear a true waterproof anything in an OCR race unless the circumstances made a lot of sense. And I don't know what those would be necessarily. Have you ever won a full, full waterproof jacket in an OCR race? No, and I wouldn't because they're so expensive. The only guys you see doing that, uh, Albin did one, Atkins might've, uh, they're getting their stuff free. Like the, the craft, uh, sorry, not craft. Uh, what does Albin have? Man, why am I blanking on this now? Why can't I? Gore. Goreware has their, their shake dry material, which is just absolutely fantastic, but you're paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars. All right. So water resistance, the way to go, but for winter running, get a water resistant and then get a soft shell and find out what works for you. I end up not wearing a jacket most times in winter because I sweat too much. I need something with breathability. Mm -hmm. Um, Last question. This is up your alley. Phys ed fit. Any insight or recommendations on shoes for the stadium race? Thanks. Nice, simple one to end on for you, but your passion. Whatever you road race in is going to be just fine for stadiums. There are certain shoes that really don't corner well. Planting and turning 90 degrees or 180, as you'll do on the ramps and stadiums, they're less than ideal. So you got to test one or two out. But almost every road shoe I've ever worn, I've wore for a stadium and it's been just fine. So anything that's designed to race in, even lightweight trainers are just fine. You don't have to overthink it. Go on Running Warehouse, search road racing shoes, and anything on there is going to work just fine. Yeah. Um, If you had to just list your three favorite. I really like the Asics Hyperspeed. I think it's accessible to just about everyone. I really like the Skechers Razor 3. It's enough shoe that even someone who's not super light and efficient can get away with it. And then if I'm going to do a super show, I'm actually going to say the Saucony Endorphin line. Speed or Pro would be very usable in a stadium. Okay. Great. I got nothing to add to that. Adidas, adios. I'll throw another one in there. I'm sure if we let you think about this long enough, there'd be 10 more. Look at my wall behind me. (laughs) Pick your poison. All right. Well, a little bit of a mashup. Two weeks in a row, Bracken. Two weeks in a row. Is that it? I think that's about it. I've got an athlete to go chat with. I've got lunch to eat, and then I've got a run to get in. I lifted this morning, as I'm sure you can tell. I can totally tell. I still have to run. A football neck going on. Uh, And late Saturday night neck. (laughs) (laughs) I know my mom listens to this and I know she's seen this. I just want to clarify that your, your daughter-in-law is not a sinner. This is a toe print. (laughs) I watch out for that daughter of yours. My goodness. She can pack a punch. Oh, she's vicious. We'll be back with another coach's episode later this week, folks. It's going to be another good one. See ya. (laughs) 